Welcome to the Way Church Podcast. The Way Church exists to love God, love others, and make disciples. You can find out more about the Way Church at thewaychurchrva.com. Now we hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Well, good morning. It's good to be together. It's good to worship together. So good to see you guys. And I know it's always nice to be seen, I'm, I'm sure. So listen, we're continuing our series in Jonah called Running. And so to give you some prep time to get there, we're going to be in Jonah chapter 4. This morning, we're actually wrapping up this short four-week series in Jonah, and we call it running because here's the walk with Jesus is a run, a race, a journey, yet you're always running somewhere. So you're either running after Jesus or you're running away from him. And what we've been talking about is there's no neutral in your walk with Christ. If you're neutral, if you're stagnant, you are running away is what it comes out to be. I mean, that's our faith journey. That's what following Jesus is. We follow him. If we stop following him, guess what you're doing? You're not following him. I know, it's, it's early. We're going to get there. We're going to be in Jonah 4, and if you're taking notes, you can title this sermon, Compassion in Action. Compassion in Action. And just a quick recap on how we got here. God told Jonah to go, and Jonah said, No. Any questions? We good? Well, so we got here, right? Because Jonah here straight his own way. He did not go, and we didn't know why yet. I mean, we talked about some reasons why, but we don't know really why Jonah said, no, I'm not going to Nineveh. And we know, if you're here last week, that Jonah did go, and God did an amazing work of revival in the people of Nineveh that came by way of showing them their sin and them seeing their sin and chose to turn and repent, which God sent a reviving, a revival, a mass movement of people coming to the Lord. But we didn't know why Jonah rebelled against God's command to go until now. I mean, we talked about it, but this is where Jonah finally expresses it in Jonah chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, you can turn to Jonah 4. Hopefully you're there by now. Verse 1 says this. Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. He prayed to the Lord, Please, Lord, isn't this what I said while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled toward Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. And now, Lord, take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. This is interesting to me, because here he throws the attributes of God back in his face. Isn't that wild? This is why I didn't want to go to the first place, because I knew you'd forgive him. Isn't that crazy? So what Jonah knew, intellectually, he knew God was gracious, compassionate, Slow to anger, abounding faithful love, one who relents from sin and disaster. And how he knew this intellectually is because it's been known, made known by God way before Jonah. I mean, this is what the Lord told Moses in Exodus 34. Very similar. It says about himself, the Lord is compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, which isn't literal, that's symbolic for forever. Forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. That's what God says about himself. So Jonah knew this intellectually, 
What's crazy is that Jonah also knew this experientially, that God is gracious, compassionate, about and faithful of, slow to anger, relenting. This is what he experienced in his journey so far. Jonah's journey from sin to the ship, to the storm, to the sea, to the city. I mean, he's experienced God's graciousness. The last time we've seen Jonah pray is when he's stuck inside of a great fish, right? Lord, help me, deliver me, let me live, have compassion on me, and now it's let me die because you didn't kill those people. Isn't that wild? I don't know. I resonate with Jonah a little bit. I can be quick to forget some things. What's interesting here, so what Jonah knew intellectually and experientially, it seemed there's no evidence that what he knew with his head ever connected to his heart. Say it again. What he knew intellectually with his head never connected with his heart. And this is, I think, where the scary part is that a lot of people sitting in churches across the world right now land. A lot of information without transformation. This is the difference between religion and relationship. A lot of knowledge, not a lot of knowing. And so I have to ask a question. I wonder, do you think Jonah loved the Lord? I think about that. Do you think he loved the Lord? I'll say, I don't know. And here's why. Judging by his actions and his attitudes, it's extremely difficult to say that he did. Now, there's no doubt he feared the Lord. And I'm not saying he didn't love the Lord. I'm just saying, from what I see, loving the Lord produces a lifestyle. He feared the Lord, no doubt. Now, I'm not convinced that he really loved the Lord. And what we see is that no relationship, and we know this, no relationship should be fear-driven. It's not a healthy relationship. You're, if you're in a fear-driven relationship, that's not healthy, and you need to get out, get out. And so there's no way God would want that relationship from us to be a fear-driven relationship. 1 John 4.18 tells us that there's no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out, casts out fear. This is vital in our relationship with the Lord. I think of my dad, and I, have a, I had a healthy dose of fear of my dad. But I didn't fear him in that way because I knew, I knew in my heart that he loved me so much. The only time I feared him is when I was an idiot, right? I, mean, I knew what was coming. But I didn't fear him. I, I loved him because I knew his love for me. This is important. When it comes to obeying God's commands, Jesus says in John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commands. If you love me, you will do these things. Not to earn your love from me. There's a vast difference. I think that's where people come to religion. If I do these things, surely God will love me. And that's not it. He says, if you do those things trying to earn my love, they're worthless. We do those things because of our love for God, not to earn love from God. Vast difference. If you love me, you'll keep my commands. Which leads us to the question, what is the greatest, most important command in all of history that God gives? I'm glad you asked. And you all know this. 
But Jesus, in pointing to Deuteronomy 6, says it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest command. Number one, if you're looking to one command to obey, this is the one. But it's important to see that nothing else in all of Scripture will make sense unless you get this first command right. None of them. Not even the second command doesn't make sense unless you get the first command right. Which you would ask, what's the second command? Which I would say, I'm glad you asked. See how this works? You don't want to be interactive. I'll be interactive for you. It's all good. Jesus answers that too, like a good pastor fashion. You know, you didn't ask this question. I'm going to give you another answer anyway. He says, in pointing to Leviticus 19, the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. The two greatest commands, love God, love your neighbor. So with both of these commands in view, I'm convinced this is what leads to the question God asks Jonah next. In verse 4, it says, the Lord asks, is it right for you to be angry? This is what God does throughout all scripture. You see Jesus doing this a lot. He asks questions to really to point to a heart posture that you probably didn't know you had. Is it right for you to be angry? I want us to think about this. Have you ever been angry with God? Just think about it. So I'm going to ask a follow-up question. I don't need you to answer it. Just think about it. Have you ever been angry with God and why? Think about it. Because some of us have. And why? And I'm going to take it a step further. And really, I'm asking the Holy Spirit to do a little prying in our lives this morning. Have you ever been angry with your boss? With a coworker? With a friend? With a teacher? How about have you ever been angry with your parents? Parents, have you ever been angry with your children? How about this? And I know this never happens. Have you ever been angry with your spouse? Let me ask you this. Why? Oh, let me give you the reasons, Josh. I've been waiting for this. It's like not raise your hand time. Just reflecting. Why? Well, this is amazing. We're called to be doers of the word, not here only. So as we look into life, how do we do the Bible? How do we do what God's word says? That's why he's given us to do these things, to live life in view of scripture. I can answer the question is why you get angry. Why I get angry. You want to know? James 4 tells us. I guarantee it. James 4 verse 1 and 2 says, What is the source of wars and fights among you? That's what we're asking. Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? Verse 2. You desire and don't have. Let me just simplify that. Why do you get angry? Because you don't get what you want. Like, think about it. At some level, we're mad because you didn't give me respect. You talked to me in a certain way. You cut me off in traffic. You drove in front of me in the fast lane at 45, right? We get angry about these things. You took my toy, right? I could do with this all day in ministry, no, at home, right? I didn't get what I wanted. We're coming up, Rachel and I, on the greatest fight argument that we ever had. 
20-year anniversary of the greatest argument that we ever had coming up in this, uh, November, probably. And she was wrong. Because she's not here to defend herself. She's back in, kid, in way kids right now. So don't ask her. Just take my word for it. But listen, so we're leading up to Christmas. And at the time, I was working 24-hour shifts every other day as in the fire service. And so I just came off a 24-hour shift on the way home, 7 a.m. in the morning. And I walk into the house, and the Christmas tree was fully decorated. How dare her, right? Yeah, amen. That's what I said. I'm glad you guys were on my side. I was so mad that she decorated the Christmas tree without me. And it led to the biggest argument that we've had in our 20 years of marriage. Isn't that crazy? Because she should have known that as a family, we do this together. Because we never talked about that, right? So obviously, she should have known that. So why did I get mad? Because I desired and did not have what I wanted. But it's on me because I never communicated it. We never talked about it because our experiences growing up in our home environments were completely opposite in so many different ways. I desired and didn't have. What's interesting about sin is that when God points out sin in our lives, it's really an act of God's grace and correction to grow us. And so we have two choices when we're confronting with the sin that we're in. You can repent, that's turn from your sin, see it's wrong, thank you, Lord, and turn back to God. You can repent or you can run. What's Jonah do? Runs again. Look at verse 5. It says, Jonah left the city and found a place east of it. He made himself a shelter there and sat in its shade to see what would happen to the city. In other words, this is the adult version of, I'm taking my toys and going home. You know what I'm saying? Anybody ever been there? Yeah. Seemingly hoping in his hatred that God would come to God's senses, right? Like, God, I, you just don't see this. You, may, you must come to your senses. I'm going to sit here and wait until you can see these people. Because obviously you're missing it. So he can finally do what's right in Jonah's eyes, right? What we do with God. Why don't you do this? Obviously you're missing something. I'm not the wrong one here. I'm going to give Jonah the benefit of the doubt. At some point he loved God. And, but I think for sure... At this point, in a Revelation 2 language, that he's abandoned his first love. It seems like there's a disconnect there. And I believe this disconnect with him and his love for the Lord is why he hated the people of Nineveh. It's important. You can't keep the second command, greatest command, without first following the first. It's a progression. This is why our mission statement is what it is. It's not revolutionary. It's the first and second greatest commands followed by the Great Commission. Right? We exist to love God, love others, and make disciples. It's the progression. You can't do them backwards. You cannot love your neighbor like yourself without first loving God. You're only able to truly love your neighbor out of an overflow of God's love for you and for him. So the question is, who's our neighbor? It's a great question because this is what the lawyer asked Jesus. Jesus gave him the first and second greatest commands. He said, all right, that's great. Well, who's our neighbor? And Jesus says, I'm glad you asked. That's what he said. Paraphrase. And in true Jesus' fashion, he just doesn't give him the answer. He tells a story. 
And I wonder, as people come to question Jesus, I just wonder if they're expecting story time with Jesus. He does it every time. And so he gives a story. In Luke 10, he says, A man was going down to Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him, and fled, leaving this man half dead. A priest, you know, these religious leaders, a priest happened to be going down the road. He saw him and passed by on the other side. In the same way, Levite, when he arrived at the place, another religious leader, saw him and passed by on the other side. And this is interesting, because I think when we think road, we think roads, sidewalks. So it'd be easy, all right, he's half dead over here, I'm just going to pass over to the other sidewalk and start going down on the other side. Not so much of the road that they're experiencing. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho was cut through some rocky hills and narrow, about five feet or so in certain areas. And so to pass by, depending on how the man was laid in this story, would either be like scooting by or walking over. Which how callous would you have to be to walk over someone that's completely helpless and hopeless? The story goes on. He says, but a Samaritan, to which the crowd, the Jewish crowd that was listening to Jesus would have gasped. Because there was a long history of hate-filled tension between the Jewish people and Samaritans. He said, but a Samaritan on his journey came to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. You see, what we're going to see is compassion leads to action. It says, the Samaritan man went over to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring olive oil on it in one. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to the inn, and took care of him. The next day he took two denarii, which is some perspective. For most people, one denarii would have been about day's wages. Two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra I spend. Sacrificial. Compassion leading to action. So Jesus tells the story and he asks the question. Because he used to ask, who's your neighbor then? Jesus says, well, which one of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? To which the lawyer said, well, the one who showed mercy. That's interesting because he couldn't even say the word Samaritan. Couldn't even come off his lips. You know, the one who had mercy, which Jesus then said something really crazy. Go and do the same. Isn't that wild? Go and do the same. How dare Jesus? In other words, in Matthew 5 language, love your enemies. Love your enemies. Let me ask you this. Who is your enemy right now? Or, maybe put another way, who are you treating like an enemy right now? You see, in many ways, what we see in Jonah is an anti-Jesus. This is interesting when you compare them. See, Jonah could not see past himself to see the great need of others. Whereas Jesus saw others in their need and went to them. And this is important. You cannot love others like Jesus loves them 
unless we begin to see others as Jesus sees them. That's important. You cannot love others until you see them as Jesus sees them. Like, think about this as you go through the shopping centers, the mall. Start looking around instead of just on your list and these things to do. Start looking around people, the people around you. You see Jonah here. We see overlooking the crowds of people of Nineveh, wishing for God's wrath to wash over him. Whereas Jesus in Matthew 9 says when he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. It's interesting. We went out with a small group of folks from here, our church, combined with a small group of our own missionaries from the International Mission Board, do some sharing the gospel outreach in our area this week. And going through the mall, we're talking to people and sharing the gospel, the good news of Jesus with these people and praying for folks. And one of the prayer requests said, you know what? We just need to pray for more compassionate people. Which we said, amen. Isn't that God's heart? For us to be a compassionate people? You see Jonah overlooking the city, harboring hatred in his heart. Whereas Jesus, in Luke 19, says as he approached and saw the city, he wept. He says, you did not recognize the time when God visited you. You did not recognize your need for a Savior. You did not recognize your greatest need, lostness. So it begs the question, do we have a heart more like Jesus or a heart more like Jonah? This is important because we're a great commission people, meaning we believe the great commission that Jesus gave as a command to all that would follow him. Go and make disciples, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all I've commanded you. And remember, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. But no, we will not accomplish the great commission without first following the great commandment. We'll not. Why? Because it takes sharing the gospel and making disciples. And why sharing the gospel hard? Well, it can be awkward. It can be scary. At some parts of the world, you're literally taking your life in your hands by sharing the gospel. How can you do that unless you love others? You can't love others in that sacrificial way unless you love God first. How about discipleship? Listen, if I asked, how, how was your week this week? Most of your first responses will be like, busy, right? Busy, full. You know, discipleship takes time. It takes energy. It takes sacrifice. And you're not going to do those things and carve out margins in your life unless you love others. And you can't love others in this way unless you love the Lord. We won't see the Great Commission accomplished unless we first follow the greatest commandment. Then all these things, it takes compassion. And what we're seeing is that compassion leads to action. You will not love your neighbor unless you first love God. And you can't love God unless you first accepted his love for you. So I wonder if you've really accepted the Lord's love for you. Known it and received it. 1 John 4.19 tells us that we love because he first loved us. 
Love leads to compassion, and compassion leads to action. And so what does Jesus' compassion look like in action? We see a lot of different ways where he meet people. He met people in their greatest need, at the time of their greatest need, over and over in the Gospels. But I think more directly and sacrificially, we see what it looks like in Romans 5. Verse 8 says, but God proves, proves his love for us, and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. How much more, it says, since we now have been justified by his blood, meaning Jesus' blood, will we be saved from wrath? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? This is what compassion looks like in action. This is what sacrificial love looks like. Jesus loves us so much that he laid down our life so that we could forever live in the presence of him with him. This is the goodness of the gospel. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short. But at some point, we need to acknowledge our sin and realize, am I going to trust in Jesus or trust in myself? That's the only two options you have. And one day, we'll all stand before the Lord, and he will say, why would I let you into heaven? Just, just imagine this. Imagine this. I, I asked this to many Christians this week. We go and share the gospel. Yeah, I'm a Christian. Well, let me ask you a question. Hypothetically, if God asked you in that day when you're standing before him, because we all will, why I should let you into heaven, what would you say? And many would start off with, well, because I did. If that is your idea of your relationship with the Lord and what is forgive, you receive forgiveness for sin, then you've got it twisted. you got it wrong. It's by faith in the finished work of Jesus. That Jesus paid the price for your sin in dying the sacrificial death because you couldn't. You couldn't pay the price for your sin. And so somehow, some way, his blood on the cross counted for you. And by your faith in that alone, you are forgiven, redeemed, reconciled, now deemed a child of God, and will live forever and ever, starting right now in the presence of the Lord, with the Lord, and one day will be realized forever when he comes back. This is the good news of the gospel. But this is the Lord's work that he has to do in our lives. That's so clear to me as we went down and shared the gospel with so many people this week. And many came to faith. Many did not. I realized we're saying words. Like, I'm just giving you good news. I can tell you that there's free chicken down the street, but if you don't want chicken, you're not going to go to it. I like some fried chicken. I'll be all over that. There's not that I know of. Just full transparency. I can't make you believe, but I desperately want you to because I've experienced it and there's no life like it. And what we see about God is what Jonah knew about God, that God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, one who relents from sending disaster. Yet God would send another object illustration to Jonah to prove how much he loves people and his compassion in action. Look at verse 6. So the Lord appointed a plant, and it grew over Jonah to provide shade for his head to rescue him from his trouble. Jonah was greatly pleased with the plants. And just real quick, notice that first, Jonah built his own covering. You guys see that? But then God made a better covering. And this is what God does. 
since the first sin entered the world. Adam and Eve recognized their sin, and they covered themselves. And then what did God do? It says in Genesis 3.21, the Lord made clothing from skins for the man and his wife and clothed them, covered them. A better covering. We'll come back to that in a second. Romans 4.7 says, blessed are those who, whose lawless acts, that is sin, are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Hebrews 9 tells us without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And to keep drilling down this even more, Ephesians 1.7 says, In him, being Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. This is God's compassion in action. And so how does it apply to you? Ephesians 2.8 says, For we are saved. That means saved, covered from God's wrath. By grace through faith. And this is not of yourselves, it is God's gift. Because we could not cover ourselves sufficiently from God's wrath. Jesus paid the sacrifice, so we don't have to. This goes back to Genesis 3. How did God get the skins to cover them? There was a sacrifice, a shedding of blood to cover their sin. It's throughout the whole Bible. God covered Jonah from the heat in order to uncover Jonah's heart. Look at verse 7. It said, When dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, and it withered. As the sun was rising, God appointed a scorching east wind. The sun beat down on Jonah's head so much that he almost fainted, and he wanted to die. He said, It is better for me to die than to live. Then God asked Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Yes, it is, he replied. I'm angry enough to die. Right? A little bit of drama. But don't miss this. Throughout all of the accounts of Jonah, we see God's sovereignty in every single way, from the ship to the storm to the sailors to the well to the wind to the worm. God is sovereignly, sovereignly working. So how does that apply to us? Despite the uncertainty of your circumstance, despite the seriousness of your situation, the severity even of your suffering, God's sovereignty is not shaken. No matter what you're going through, God is still sovereign over it all. And I believe Romans 8.28. For we know, we know, all things work together for the good for those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. And sometimes the good that God's working in your life is showing you your sin. Leading you into repenting so you can receive reviving. Because repentance restores relationships. It just does. Unrepentant sin damages relationships. One with God. Sin is a barrier between us and God. So we need to resolve that sin first. So when you sin against someone else, you first go to God. And then you go to the other person that you sinned against. So it restores relationship with us and God the Father and us in our relationships. But James 5 tells us, verse 16, to confess your sins 
to one another. Ooh, that's a little awkward, right? Like, I don't mind in my own heart and to God, it's kind of private still. Confess your sins to one another. And pray for one another so that you may be healed. Listen, I'm coming off a, a couple days of, I mean, you know, Rachel and I and my wife went to a minister, pastor's and their wives' retreat. And it focused a lot on how awful of a husband I am. I'm just going to let you know. Man, I came back beaten, not so much refreshed. No, but it was good. Why do I say that? Because we spent some time digging into some failures and into putting James 5.16 into work, confessing our sins to one another, that we've sinned against each other, and then praying for one another. And God did some healing. I want you to know we have a pretty strong relationship for sure, but I've still fallen short in various ways. And sometimes we'll be blind to it. And God revealed some things that we were able to work through. So I'm a hard lot marriages are I'm a hard lot for our church, for our community, but for our church, because marriage is hard. It's awesome, and it's wonderful, and it's hard, and it's sanctifying, and it's growing. And it takes work. It takes work. And so we're always going to fall short. So if, listen, if you are struggling in your marriage, work it out. Because listen, most of your arguments are come from you desired something you didn't get. Maybe it's just me. I desired things I didn't get. It was funny when we talked about what Rachel's faults were. She ain't perfect, but I couldn't think of anything because I'm pretty sure I start all arguments. Can I be transparent? Can a pastor start arguments? Is that cool with you guys? Just not perfect, man. But by God's grace, he revealed some unrepentant sin in our lives. And our relationship is stronger. Notice God asks, is it right for you to be angry again? The answer is no. This is what he says in verse 10 and 11. The Lord said, you cared about the plant which you did not labor over and did not grow. It appeared in a night and perished in a night. So may I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between the right and their left, as well as many animals. And what we see here is God's compassion led to his action in the people of Nineveh. He don't care about the city. He cares about the people. Seeing them in their great need, he acted. They couldn't even distinguish from the right and the left, he says. And this is interesting to me because if we, you know, we have several kids, many kids, do the Weatherspoons have. And it, all of them, when they were toddlers, learned to put on their shoes and finally put on their shoes themselves, you would think at a, like a 50% success rate of distinguishing right and left on their shoe placement, right? I would just think, I would bet, at least half the time they'd get it right. They never got it right. They were always on the wrong foot. Like, how do you do that? You think sometimes we'd hit this thing right? But when I think about just their cluelessness, helplessness, always getting it wrong, the people of Nineveh, the people of the West End, cannot even distinguish from a right and a left unless God does something and moves and his compassion leads to action. When I see this verse, as he says, the people of Nineveh, right? I loved Nineveh, all these people. It reminds me of Jesus' words in John 3.16. For God so loved the world 
That's important. It's not like he's so beautiful. He loves the world itself, right? I, lo- I grew up in Northern California quite some time, and so we had people that really loved the trees, if you know what I'm saying, right? Love the trees. Too much. Do that what you will. It's not what God's saying. He loves the people he created. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that everyone who believes in him will not perish and have eternal life. And how did he do that? He laid down his life so that we can live by faith alone. So I'm just asking, have you ever trusted in Jesus? Or do you just know a lot of stuff about him and think that's pretty cool? Do you trust on your knowledge or do you trust with your heart? Because when it says, make him Lord of your life, that means you surrender everything. That you're now following him with everything you have. Can you say that with your life? Your finances, your family, your faith, firmly placed in him. Romans 10 tells us, if we confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Will be. Done deal. Every time. Have you called on Jesus as Lord of your life? Have you got to the point where God showed you, you are a crummy God? Have you figured that out yet? Like, you're pretty bad at being God of your life. Maybe you haven't got there yet. I'm asking God reveals that to you if you have not placed Jesus as Lord, saying, I can't do this. I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I need you. I trust in you. I know that you died for me so I can live with you. And my whole life is yours because that's the way I was created anyway. Romans 10.13 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone means everyone. It doesn't say, unless you've done this. right? Unless you got drunk last night, then you may want to be sober for three weeks before you come to me. It's not what it says. Everyone. Maybe you're addicted to pornography, drugs, alcohol. Everyone who comes to God, who confesses Jesus Lord, will be saved. See, we want to clean ourselves up first. Because we know God's holy, holy, holy. We just sung it. Even unbelievers know there's some holiness of maybe a God. And we feel like, man, I just, I'm not good enough. So I need to do this, I need to do this, and then maybe someday I'll come to God. You're not promised someday. So what do you do with that? You come to the Lord and let Him deal with the issues that we have in our lives. You cannot clean yourself up enough to come and be right with Jesus, or else Jesus would not have died for you. So there's a couple things I'm just asking the Holy Spirit to work in this morning. I'm going to invite Austin back up, and we're going to worship one more time, continue to worship. We're going to sing. And this is the time where we respond to the Holy Spirit's leading and moving right now in you. So I'm asking the Holy Spirit just to reveal to us, is there some broken relationships in our lives right now? And maybe that person that your relationship's broken with, maybe they don't deserve your forgiveness. Maybe they definitely didn't even ask for it. Maybe it was 100% their fault. You know the way of Jesus is? That you forgive them anyway. Have you forgiven? Is there someone that needs your forgiveness, even though they don't know it? Because we forgive 
out of our love for the Lord. Forgiven people, forgive people. Or maybe you don't even know the love of the Lord. Maybe for the first time you're starting to actually experience God's love and realize He is gracious and compassionate, abounding in faithful love. Right now, you can have the relationship you were meant to have in the first place with Him simply by acknowledging, I've sinned. In your own prayer time, I've sinned. I've fallen short. I've gone my own way, but I see I need you. God, save me from my sin and let real life that I've meant to have in the first place with you begin. So as we respond, I'm going to pray for us. Austin's going to lead us in another song, but you respond to what the Lord's doing in your life. Maybe it's you standing and singing praises to God because he is worthy and we're so thankful for his goodness, his grace, his mercy. Or maybe it's you just sitting there and praying because God's revealing some things in your life. Just deal with that as God's graciousness to you. Maybe you need to go pray with someone else. Maybe there's someone in this place that you have a broken relationship with that you need to pursue mending. Or maybe your first step after you leave this place is pursuing, resolving that broken relationship that you may have with someone else. Whatever God's moving on in your life, Follow him and do what he's leading you to do, no matter what the difficulty is. We'll have a prayer team over to the side as well. We'd love to pray with you, pray for you, walk alongside you. But let's respond. Let's pray together and let's continue to worship. Father, we thank you for bringing us to this place this morning. We thank you for your amazing patience with us, your amazing love, your faithfulness, your goodness. Lord, right now I just ask that you reveal maybe blind spots that we've had in our lives, Lord. Whether it's broken relationships between us and our children, or between a spouse or a friend. Lord, help us to see them like you see them. Another person created in your image. Help us to remember our own shortcomings, that we've all sinned and fallen short of, God, of your glory. And we've all been in need of your forgiveness. We've all been extended your grace. Help us not forget to where we've come from. And even where we are, we're still a needy people who desperately need you, Lord. And Father, if, if there's anyone thinking they know you because they know about you, yet have missed you, because they've not trusted in you. Well, I pray that you lead them to see your goodness and your grace and your amazing love and your desire for them to come to you to, to know what that true relationship looks like, to, to know what true love is, that where true hope is. It's only found in you. So Father, lead us in this time of worship. Lead us to respond to what you're doing in your life. And we're so thankful for your presence and you're moving, and we know that you're near to all who call it to you. Father, we thank you for bringing us here. We thank you for your reminder of how good you are. We're thankful for your presence and your moving. Father, we thank you for this time. We pray this in the name that's above every
other name that is the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Way Church Podcast. If you would like prayer or if you'd like to talk to someone about a personal relationship with Jesus, please contact us through our website at thewaychurchrva.com.